Go ahead and be seated. I want to invite you to find a copy of God's Word and begin making your way to John chapter 18. We're going to finish John chapter 18 this morning, uh, looking at verses 28 through 40. So we've been sort of slowly, carefully making our way through the Gospel of John each week. Two thousand two, there was a Oscar-winning movie called *The Pianist*. It's based on a true story. It's a, about a Jewish pianist who um, is from Poland, from Warsaw, Poland, and this was during the time when Nazi Germany was was overtaking things. And uh, the movie depicts him witnessing his his parents, his his brother, his sister, uh, over three hundred thousand people being taken into trains. All their way to death camps, to gas chambers, and somehow this, this pianist, he, he escapes. He's hiding out. He's, he's in a sort of bombed-out house, and uh, he's up in the attic. He's, he's trying to open this, this can of fruit just to survive. He's at the point of starvation. And, and just as he's about to get it open, uh, the camera turns to, to a Nazi soldier. He looks at the man, and the soldier says to him, he he says, who are you? Ask him what he does. And he says, I, I am, well, I was a pianist. The soldier says, well, play something for me. There's this dusty old piano in, in the scene. And so he sits down and he begins to play and he begins to play this classical music. And for six or seven minutes, you just have, in the midst of, of a movie that's depicting the, the horror of humanity, the, the ugliness of the Holocaust, rebellion of, of humankind, in the midst of all of that, you have for this moment this, this beauty that emerges as this man sits down and, and plays his piano. Likewise, we come to a scene in the Gospel of John where, where what we see is, is the trial of Jesus. And we see the ugliness of humanity, we see the injustice, we see the rebellion the godlessness, the hatred, and yet in the midst of this, something beautiful shines. Something, something wonderful emerges forth, and it's, it's a picture of Jesus. And it's a picture of Jesus, and, and, and it's a picture of the Savior who came to die in our place. And, and, and here what you have is this trial where, where Jesus is before the the Roman authorities before the Roman governor of Judea in particular, his name is Pontius Pilate, and we see something about the beauty of Jesus Christ. Now let me read it for us in John chapter 18, beginning verse 28. The narrative continues and it says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he'd said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. As the narrative continues, as it gets closer and closer to the cross, as Jesus moves closer and closer to the climax of his ministry, again, we see something of the beauty of Jesus Christ shining forth in the midst of what is an unjust trial, in the, in the midst of what is the rebellion of humanity in, in full display. And in these verses, there's, there's four pictures, really, of the beauty of, of Jesus Christ, the, the Savior who reconciles sinners to God. Now, let's start with the first one. It is that of a lamb. See a picture of Jesus as the lamb. You have to to get into the details here to see this, but verse 28 introduces us to the scene. And and again, there doesn't seem to be much to this verse, but but when you dig into it, what you see is important details. They, They then led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So early in the morning, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now, perhaps what is the most important detail here is the fact that it is indeed Passover. This is, no doubt, the most important, one of the most important Jewish festivals of their calendar. It it occurred once a year. What it did is it was a time that set apart to commemorate God delivering his people out of bondage in Egypt. So during that time, the, the Israelites, they... They experienced a number of plagues. The Egyptians experienced the plagues, and that's how the Lord delivered them. That was part of the Lord's judgment against the, the Egyptians. And, and it was through these plagues the Lord worked in setting his people free. And you had this last plague, which was the angel of death. And what happened was God told them that the angel of death was going to come over, pass through every household, and take every firstborn except the household that took a lamb without blemish slayed the lamb, smeared the blood over the doorpost. And for every house that had this blood smeared over the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over that house. In other words, if, if a lamb could be slain, then they wouldn't have to die. Now, the Jews, it says, couldn't or didn't enter the house. 
I mean, this was the house of a, of a Gentile, and, and they believed that if you entered the house of a Gentile, it would render you ceremonially unclean. Of course, that's not really in the Old Testament. That was in the Mishnah. That was in their own laws. That was sort of their own man-made thing, that they would say if you went to the house of a Gentile, then you'd be unclean, and you couldn't have any, any uh, activity in, in the Passover feast, and the Passover meal. And, and so here you have these Jews who are who have arrested Jesus, they've seized Jesus, they're giving him this unfair trial, and they're not entering the house, the governor's headquarters, because they don't want to miss out on the Passover. Now, there's a bit of irony here. In fact, there's a a lot of irony, because again, here what you have is is these Jews who are saying, we're so zealous for the law that that we're going to abide it by no matter what, and, and we don't want to miss out on this Passover feast, and we want to be clean before God. But yet, in their effort to be clean before God, they're plotting and they're scheming to kill the Son of God. They're being so careful to follow the ritual so that they can eat the Passover lamb, which, which was the custom, but all the while, they're demanding that the Lamb of God be put to death. I mean, in so doing, they're shutting themselves out from the benefits of this slain lamb, the saving power. And I think this teaches us something about empty rituals, empty customs, depending upon rituals and motions and customs and acts that to give us a clean conscience before God. I mean, if you... If you've been with us throughout most of the Gospel of John, it's been pretty clear that, that Jesus has said, I am, I'm the only way to God, right? There is no other way to be right with God, to know God, to have a relationship with God, to be saved from our sins than through the person of Jesus Christ, and then trusting in that, then running to that. But even in our, in our Christian walk, we can sometimes appeal to, to empty rituals. We... We might appeal to our church attendance. We might appeal to our baptism. We might appeal to, to how often we pray. I mean, all of these are, are great and wonderful things. You should be doing these things, but none of these things can save us from our sin. And so when our conscience condemns us, there is one place, there's only one place we can ever go, and that's to appeal to the Lamb who was slain. Now, this entire trial with Pilate can be a little difficult to follow because there's, there's a bit of back and forth. I mean, again, the Jews didn't want to go into the house because they thought they'd be unclean. Jesus is inside the house or the headquarters, and so Pilate is going back and forth between the two as the discussion continues. And it says in verse 29, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? I mean, here Pilate assumes there has to be a crime, right? If you were dead set on killing someone, on seeing someone executed, you would assume they did something to deserve it. Of course, this starts to become a problem to the Jews because they don't really have a crime against Jesus. And they don't want Pilate to be a judge. They want Pilate to be an executioner. They don't want justice for Jesus. They don't want a fair trial for Jesus. They simply want Jesus dead. And so the way they answer Pilate, you get this impression that they're a little bit insulted. Verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have to deliver him over to you. 
It's almost their way of saying, listen, don't ask questions, don't meddle, just take our word for it. He needs to be put to death and go ahead and execute him. They have no reason. He's the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And so, so Pilate says to them in verse 31, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now you have to understand that, that in the law of Moses, capital punishment was allowed. In, in fact, uh, Leviticus 24.16 required it uh, in the case of blasphemy, which is one of the things that they accused Jesus of. I mean, Jesus clearly said that he is God, and, and they, being good Jews, said this is blasphemy. Nobody can claim to be God. Nobody can claim to be him. And so the law would allow them to stone him. And, and the Romans, who sort of uh, had, had occupied the Israelites, the, the Jews, they, they allowed for some flexibility. When they conquered people, they would allow for their law to exist to some extent or another. And, and so Pilate says, well, why don't you guys just go ahead and take it into your own hands. Use your own legal system. Do it your, your own way. And then the Jews respond, well, wait a second, we can't do that. It's not lawful. And they start quoting Roman law. And, and it all makes you begin to wonder why? Right? It just seems like a bunch of shenanigans going back and forth, and why don't they just execute Jesus himself? And the answer is clearly found in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, if you think about it, if Jesus had been tried and executed according to the law in Leviticus 24, he would have been stoned to death. But that would not have been a fulfillment of the prophecy. That wouldn't be the kind of saving death that was promised in the Scriptures. I mean, Jesus, again, is in control of His death from start to finish. And remember back in John chapter 12, He said, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. So Jesus knew, Jesus talked about, Jesus clearly said, I'm going to be crucified. It's going to be through my crucifixion that there will be a saving death for you. And so the reason why this back and forth between who should kill Jesus, how they should kill Jesus, is happening is because it was supposed to happen in one way. And that was through crucifixion. It had to happen. The Romans had to do it. They were the ones who practiced crucifixion. They are the ones who, who perfected crucifixion. It had to be because Jesus, as he hung upon that cross, he bore the curse that is associated with that word we find in, in Deuteronomy that is, is cursed as anyone who is hung on a tree. He had to die that way so he could take our place. But again, all of this is happening against the backdrop of Passover. During the Passover time, you would have all sorts of people flooding into the city, bringing with them the best lamb, the spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, preparing it for sacrifice. And you would have lamb after lamb after lamb slain, the blood filling the place. Commemorating, remembering the way that God delivered His people. From Egypt. But, again, if you've been with us in the Gospel of John, 
You know that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, what, what did he say? The first thing he said when he saw Jesus coming was, Behold, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He is the perfect sacrifice whom God provided as an atonement for the sins of his people. Not only is Jesus the Lamb, but he's also the king. You see, as the trial continues, Pilate enters back into the house to talk with Jesus. And, and, and there's a lot of background info we could give on Pilate, but just to sort of throw this out there, Pilate is, is kind of a torn man. I mean, on the one hand, here's a man who is, who is really brutal. Uh, history shows that he was a brutal guy and politically kind of inept, making mistakes all the time. And it uh, would have been easy for him, in one sense, to just do what the Jews asked. Sure, you want to kill this man? You want to execute him? You don't really have a good reason? Sure, let's go ahead and do it. And that, that wouldn't have been completely out of character for Pilate. But, but his wife, however, told him not to do it. Like any smart man, he takes into consideration what his wife said. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 19, it says, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. I mean, something happened where, where, where Pilate's wife had a dream uh, telling her that Jesus was a righteous man. And so here she is sending word to her husband saying, Listen, don't, don't do anything to him. Don't condemn him. Have nothing to do with him. And, and here you have Pilate again. He's torn. What is he going to do? So verse 33, Pilate enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? I mean, okay, I'm going to interrogate him. I'm going to start asking him some questions. And all, all four of the Gospels, the you is very emphatic. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, mind you, here's Jesus dressed in the garb of peasants not wearing the typical kingly robes. And, and after all he's gone through in the garden, his clothes are probably stained with the bloody sweat. And, and probably his face is swollen from being hit by the soldiers. And by all appearances, Jesus did not look like a king. And my guess is that Pilate is thinking that this whole situation is absurd. I mean, are you really the king of the Jews? I mean, are you really the person that everybody's making a fuss over, that, that there's all this hoopla over, and, and, and everybody thinks that you're this big threat, the Jews are so worried about you, and, and, and are you really a king? The fact is, he was a king. He is a king. So typical of Jesus, what he does is he turns the tables on Pilate. He says in verse 34, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about he really places on him. He says, hey, what about you? Who are you to question who I am? That, and that question really cuts through Pilate's exterior, his, his proud exterior. Jesus was, was after Pilate's heart. In a sense, Jesus flips things and he puts Pilate on, on trial. I mean, life is not always the way that it seems, not, not in God's economy. In fact, so often, the, there's often this mighty reversal of appearances, the, the meek rule, the least are the greatest, the poor are the rich, the, the weak are the strong, the unclean are the wise. And, and so here you have the, the beaten, defenseless Christ holding court on Pilate, the Roman Empire, the Sanhedrin. 
He's holding trial on all of us, asking the question, who do you say that I am? And, and Pilate answered him in verse 35, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? But again, Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If, if, they, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And so here Jesus is, is not backing down. He's establishing his spiritual authority but he's saying, listen, my, my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. I'm a spiritual king. And, and I don't rule by material force. The fact that Christ had demonstrated in the, in the garden when, in the soul, when Peter had cut off the soldier's ear and he, he healed it. I mean, Jesus is far above this physical world and his power and deity. And, and so his answer throws Pilate for a loop. If Jesus had proclaimed himself an earthly king, Pilate's decision would have been easy would have executed him, would have taken him out. But a spiritual king? I mean, po politically, Jesus was guilty of nothing. And, and spiritually, I mean, Pilate's probably wondering if maybe his wife was right. So you have this wonderful contrast. Jesus, the spiritual king, and Pilate, the, the material king, the earthly king. One would do anything to receive power, honor, and glory. The other gave up his glory. One valued what he could touch and taste and feel, and the other lived and taught that we are not to lay up for ourselves riches upon this earth. One ruled by manipulation and force, and the other lamented, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. And, and one was arrayed in, in royal robes and, and splendor and riches, but the other had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, as Isaiah would prophesy. Jesus is not a king because subjects made him a king. He's not a king because he inherited some sort of family line. He's, he's a king by nature, and he's a king over spiritual dominion. It's a spiritual kingdom. Three times he says, my kingdom my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and so he rules a kingdom where he creates and then he regenerates his own subject. The, the kingship of Jesus is in a realm all by itself. Man's world produces man's kings and rulers and Jesus here is this heavenly, eternal, supernatural king. There was nothing about Jesus that resembled an earthly king in any way. So Pilate, I mean, he, was, he was dead wrong in, in thinking Jesus was not a king. He is a king of kings. In fact, if you go forward to the book of Revelation, it points to a day when all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will crush all the petty monarchs, and all the pilots in the world will feel the power of his reign when he returns to establish his kingdom forever. Now understand in all of this, the love of God was clearly expressed in the midst of a hate-filled scene. I mean, the scene screams the sinfulness of humanity as they wrongfully try Jesus, but in the midst of this, we also see the love of God. Because it wasn't by the powers of Rome 
that Jesus was bound and taken away. It had nothing to do with the powers of Jerusalem. He gave the world permission to bind himself, to ultimately see himself crucified. While the world was busy hating the Son of God, God in the person of Jesus was fully expressing his love for the world, and he is the king who invites us into this kingdom. You realize every time somebody becomes a believer, every time somebody trusts in the sacrifice of Christ, they repent of their sins, they they find new life in Jesus, then the kingdom of God just got a little bit bigger. The kingdom of God grew by one person. And Colossians tells us that, that what happens is that is that a person is transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom that everybody starts out in, and is then transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. It's not an earthly kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a temporary kingdom, it's an eternal kingdom with an eternal king. Now, not only is Jesus the lamb, not only is he the king, but this passage tells us that he is the truth. The narrative keeps going. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is true? Now we could perhaps spend quite a bit of time simply answering that one question, what is truth? A question that is a pertinent one. A question that many people ask, but not many people find satisfactory answer to. And really, in a sense, this is not a new question. I mean, Pilate is asking this over 2,000 years ago. He's living in a time when when Greek philosophy was, was everything and, and acquiring knowledge and, and amassing information and, and, and yet, like everyone else, Pilate's probably become disillusioned with it because it doesn't answer the fundamental questions of why we exist and what our purpose is. And, and, and at the same time, I mean, you fast forward and, and really so much of what, how we operate today with, with a relativistic culture comes from German philosophy. That, that truth is not absolute, but always changing with the ebb and flow of world history. That, it, that it's never objective, but it's always subjective. And it depends on who you're asking and when you're asking them. And what's true for one person may not be true for the next person. What's true 20 years ago may not be true later on. And Jesus here gives us, I think, a few quick, quick answers to what is true. How do, we, how do we understand truth? I'd say, number one, there's such a thing as truth, and that truth is, is an entity. That, that truth is singular. That truth is knowable. Truth holds together. There, there, is, there is no phase of truth that is not related to every other phase of truth. So think about it this way. The, the nature of God, which is truth, is related to the atom, for example. Related to science, or related to everything else. And, and all things that are true are a part of the truth and stand in this, this relationship with, with God who Himself is the truth. All truth really belongs to God. And so if truth is knowable, then, then understanding what truth is means we, we get to know God. Second, Jesus really indicates that truth is objective, that there, that there is... A, 
an objective truth to be observed and discussed, and we can and, and we can look at it without prejudice. I mean, this is involved in Christ's statement that he has come to bear witness to the truth. As again, he's he's on trial here, so if Jesus is on trial, and he and he's saying that he has come to bear witness to the truth, and there means that there's there's objective evidence that truth exists. Just as you would submit something as evidence in the court of law. And so that means that truth is not something that's reached by just this great leap of faith. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying we don't have to have faith. By no means am I saying that. But faith at the same time doesn't mean that we sort of check our brains at the door. I mean, Christianity provides the most credible, plausible answers to the greatest needs of humanity. And you and I can look at these things and study these things and understand these things. We find that what God has done, what needed to be done, was the sending of His Son, who died for us, who rose again, who reigns for us. That, that is objective truth. Therefore, it can be studied and applied to our lives. But, but truth also comes from above. I think Jesus makes that really clear here. Truth comes from above. When Jesus says that He has come to bear witness to the truth, He implies that in the ultimate sense, truth is not of this world, but rather must come to this world by revelation. Which is incredible to think because all other systems of belief and worldviews are, are you going out and discovering truth and developing truth and yet Christianity says truth has come down in the person of Jesus Christ. Truth has come down to you. Truth is knowable. Truth. We don't have to guess at what God is like or what He's done in Jesus Christ for our salvation. If that was the case, then you and I would be lost. But it's not. Number four, in the ultimate sense, the, the truth that comes from God has been embodied in a person. I mean, no one would, would ever imagine this. To us, truth always seems abstract, off in the distance, theoretical figures, equations, propositions. But God says that truth is personal. He says truth is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so this is, this is an answer to all the philosophers, people like Plato who said that, that maybe someday there will come forth from God a word who will reveal all the mysteries and make things plain. Well, that happened. The Word has come. The Lord is that Word. He is the one who has come to reveal all the mysteries to make everything plain to us. Jesus is the Lamb. He is the King. He is the truth. But lastly, He is the great substitute. He is the great substitute. And after He said this, He went back outside and told them, I find no guilt in Him. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. Pilate was really at a loss what to do. I mean, here he is interrogating this man. He can't find anything wrong. He can't find any credible reason for him to execute him. And, and, and the Jews just won't hand, take him over. And, and so here he is, it's stuck in this spot. And so he remembered, hey, you know, there's a Jewish tradition that every year at Passover, 
we get to release someone. It's kind of a symbolic act which, which sort of remembered and commemorated the mercy of God in delivering the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. And it's just a wonderful picture right there. Taking somebody out of jail, the, the shackles off, delivering them free, merciful, gracious. Just like God delivered everybody from Israel. So Pilate gives them a choice. Hey, you have Jesus or Barabbas. Now, now Barabbas was, 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 a, was a robber. Uh, some of the other Gospels tell us he, was, he wasn't just a petty theft. He was, he was a murderer. In fact, Matthew tells us he was a notorious prisoner. So, so I mean, this isn't, this isn't a guy who just got you know, caught shoplifting at the 7-Eleven. Here's somebody who's he's been in and out of jail. He's done horrible things. He's killed people. Uh, he's the kind of guy that you, you want locked up. He's the kind of guy that if you're going to execute someone, it's, it's going to be Barabbas. And so Pilate thought, hey, if I give them the choice, obviously they're going to pick Jesus. This guy hasn't killed anybody. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. Can't find any problem with him. I mean, hey, maybe I think he's a little wacko because he thinks he's a king, but, but, but being crazy isn't against the law. So Pilate probably thought, hey, this will work out great. But of course the crowd chose Barabbas. Now even in this matter, things were not as they seemed. There's, 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 there's some divine poetry going on. Origin, the church father, tells us that Barabbas, his name meant Jesus Barabbas, meaning Jesus, son of a father. And yet, the crowd chose Jesus, son of the father, instead of Jesus, son of the father. Origin concludes that this has always been sinner's choice. This symbolizes man's willingness to resort to murder and theft while rejoicing Rejecting the true spiritual king. This is the way of the world and the way that our hearts are before coming to Christ. We, we choose what is evil. We choose what is wrong. We choose to go against the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus stands in the place of Barabbas. Let that sink in for a second. Even in the midst of an unfair trial, they can't find anything that Jesus has done wrong. And yet here you have this notorious criminal who should be locked up forever, who should be executed, and Jesus takes his place. Listen to how Donald Gray Barnhouse put it. He said, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place, for it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God that should be poured upon me. I deserved the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. He was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. This is why we speak of the substitutionary atonement. Christ was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. That is why I say that Christianity can be expressed in three phases. Phrases, I deserve hell, Jesus took my hell, and there is nothing left for me but heaven. I suppose that's why the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Perhaps that's why Peter writes, see himself 
bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Because he's our great substitute. Not only did he stand in the place of Barabbas, but he, he stood in our place. He stood in your place, in my place, taking upon himself what you and I rightly deserve. And so, the end of John 18 is, it's not just an unfair trial. I mean, the trial was a sham. It, it was an unfair trial, but it was more than that. It wasn't just the sinfulness humanity on display. It wasn't simply uh, the wickedness of those who were rejecting Jesus. But it was also a picture of the beauty, the glory of Christ emerging out of sinful humanity. This is a trial that is God-ordained. The Lamb was slain and His blood was applied to us so that God would pass over us, letting His wrath not fall upon us, but fall upon His Son. The King became a slave. He, he lowered Himself. He emptied Himself, they were told in Philippians, and He died on a wooden cross. He is the truth, the standard and judge of everything, and He is the substitute who took the place for all those who will respond to Him. So what Jesus Christ has done in this picture is He is reversing the sentence of all believers. And the only question that remains for you is has He reversed yours? Is this the Jesus that you believe in? Is this the Jesus that you trust? Because it gives you an invitation to put your faith in Him. Father, we want to thank You so much for the revelation of truth, the revelation of Your Son. We can know You. We can have a relationship with You. We can leave the kingdom of darkness that, that we all find ourselves in at some point. And we originate in. We can find ourselves taken, carried, brought out of that kingdom into your kingdom by your power, through your son, through the atoning and sacrificial death of Christ. So we pray that this would be the thing that we trust. And this would be the thing that we put our hope in. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.